Hello and you are most welcome to episode 186 of the Game Pit Podcast. My name's Ronan, I am your solo host for this episode and as nudged and hinted at, I have been able to get out one more treasure hunt for Essen 2022. Will it be the last? Who knows? Let's just see how the week goes. But in this episode, I am just going to be giving you my opinions on 13 games that are going to release at Spiel 2022. And from what I've learned from videos, rule books, comments, whatever it may be, whether my personal opinion is on them without having played them, they're a treasure or a trap worth putting your money into or not. It's all just a bit of fun to add to the excitement prior to the big show. And do remember that Sean and I are going to be there all weekend, well, not on Saturday, and we're going to be on the Dice Tower booth Thursday afternoon, 4 till 6, and then Friday afternoon, 2 till 4, and also on Sunday afternoon at some point, it looks like 12 till 2. So if you're around, come up, please, and say hello. It'd be fantastic to see you. Okay, with all that said, we're going to kick into the first game for this episode, and this one is called Swindler. And Swindler is for two to four players. It's got a playtime of about 60 minutes. Publisher is Edition Spielweise, who brought out Micro Macro, Crime City, Nova Luna, Cottage Garden, and more. And the designer, and this is mainly probably why it caught my eye, is Matthias Kramer, designer of the fantastic Watergate, Lancaster, Glenmore, Rococo, and many more games. In fact, he's got more than one game coming out even just at this show. The theme of Swindler is that we are all competitively Thieves, pickpockets in Victorian London, competing to steal loot from bags that contain tiles to fulfil orders from clients or to sell this loot to dealers. And once a set number of orders, depending upon the player count, are completed, that's going to be the end of the game and whoever has scored the most points is going to be the winner. Now, there are five loot bags. On your turn, you must draw one tile from one of them. And each of them start with six I call them good tiles here, probably not good tiles, six things you can steal, and one skull. After you've drawn the first tile, as long as it's not a skull, if it's a skull, you get like a, a recompense for a coin, but as long as it's not a skull, you then have a choice. Do you keep drawing from that bag, or do you stop and keep what you've drawn so far? So that's the push-your-luck element of Swindler. Do I keep going because I want to get, obviously, the more loot tiles I can get in one go, the more efficient that is to me. You'll be able to look around and see which tiles and how many tiles have been taken out of a bag so far because you must display any loot that you're keeping it should be clear to see oh there's four loot tiles taken out of the red bag i probably shouldn't go in there my chances are less than going in the black bag which has got more loot in there because i can see there's none out at the moment you get the idea oh by the way if you draw a skull at that point not only do you lose the tiles that you drew on this turn but all tiles of that color you may have been keeping back so the risk is slightly bigger than you might think but once I have finished drawing, I can fulfill orders of specific items in sets. Now, each bag has got different amounts of different things, and you can see what's going on and what you might want to go in for. If you want to fulfill an order, you have to have reserved it first prior to drawing, and it costs points to withdraw from an order to get your token back. Or if you don't fulfill it on your turn and another person gets a go and they reserve it, it'll kick you out and that will cost you points. So you really only want to reserve ones that you're confident you can complete on this go. But if you don't reserve any, you can't complete any. There's another, I guess, push your luck element. If you've got other spare loot tiles you don't want hanging around, you feel like they've been around for too long, there are dealers which will buy them for you for victory points. 
Now in the order deck, when you complete them and more are drawn, there are police raids that can come out and they have got all sorts of different effects, but they're checking basically how much you've been hoarding. So they can take hoarded goods from you or for fulfilling certain high value orders, you collect wanted posters. And if you get too many wanted posters, there's a police raid for them. Then it can cause you to actually miss a go. Controversial mechanism there. After fulfilling a certain amount of orders, you've got a special power you can activate, which you can then use for the rest of the game. And there are also apprentice cards you can get, which will also give you special powers and will let you bend the rules slightly and give you a slight slant on what you're trying to do. Now, overall, for Swindler, the look to me is nothing to write home about. It's the kind of goofy, cartoony thing you get sometimes in this Victorian theme. The Victorian theme doesn't really mean much. But that's definitely not what caught my eye. It's all quite dark and cartoony. What I'm looking at is with push your luck, I need a good reason to push my luck, but with not too much loaded onto it so that it's a complete random. If I draw a skull, it's just going to ruin everything. And if I get lucky in a few draws, that's me out of the game. And it's a fine line to balance on. So I'm always slightly wary whenever I see a push your luck mechanism. The other mechanism I mentioned it before is miss a go. Now, if you've got miss a go system within the game, you have to have quick turns and everyone has to play quickly. Now, I think this has got quick goes, but that's also something that would hold me back. One of the best things that I like about it is that there's only seven tiles in each bag and you can see what's left in there. So I am actually choosing. It's not completely random. It's not the roll of a die. It's not drawn from a massive deck of cards. It's I need, for example, I know a pearl necklace. I can see that there's two pearl necklaces in that bag, but there's none in there. So there's no point going in that bag. And I have a bit of control, or at least I feel I do, over the decision I'm making. So there's good and bad here. It's putting me in two different directions. In the end for Swindler, I've got faith in Matthias Kramer. I like a lot of his designs. It looks like there is enough control to the chaos. So my judgment on Swindler is going to be a treasure just about okay the next game is a small little card game called kites it's for two to six players takes 10 minutes it's from floodgate games who did sagrada and bosk and decorum and the designer is kevin hamano it's his first published game in kites there are six sand timers five of them have got colors and one of them is sort of like a white multicolored one each player has got a hand of four cards and on your turn you simply play a card down now once you play a card of a certain color that sand timer flips over and the goal is to get all the cards played without any of the sand timers that have been flipped running down. Now, that sand timer keeps running until another player plays a card of the same colour, which will flip it back over again. So you're playing cooperatively, and when it comes around to your turn, it's your responsibility to make sure that none of these sand timers are too low, and you play the correct colour to flip back over again. And some cards have got two colours on them, so you're keeping two running, so you're keeping an eye on all of these things and you're attempting to work together to keep it all going smoothly. You just play one, draw one, hand of four cards, trying to keep it going. Complete mayhem. It's just... <laughs> it's hopefully not too much shouting at each other, but just this quick play to keep it going and hoping you got the right colour and being under pressure. The purple sand timer's nearly out. What's interesting is the sand timers have all got different lengths that they run to, so the red one is very, very short. It's only 30 seconds. I can't remember which one is the longest one. But there will be more red cards off the other colours within the game, so it balances out. So red should be constantly flipping over all the time, while some of the other ones, we can be slightly more measured in what we're doing, but not... Too measured because it is a real-time, cooperative, little bit of a hectic game. 
There are also, if you think you're getting too good at this, there are some tricky cards in the deck. There's like an aeroplane that when that's played, and when you get it, you have to play it on your next turn. You can't talk. There's a storm, meaning that when you play a storm card, all the timers flip over all at once before the next players go. You can obviously make it as hard as you want with putting more and more of those cards in the deck, possibly to the point of it being impossible. I know that Sean is going to run screaming from the idea of kites, but I am absolutely in for this. And if you go to cons or big group things with me, you can expect to see me toting around kites for the next while because I'm going to be laughing very much and getting very stressed and having the crack with this one. I, I love the idea of this, although clearly not for everyone. Okay, next one up is Mosaic. Two to six players, 120 minutes playtime, from Forbidden Games, Raccoon Tycoon, Lizard Wizard, Railroad Rivals, and the designer is Glenn Drover. Forbidden Games basically is Glenn Drover's company, and he's designed those games above and also Railways of the World and Age of Empires. The whole crack for Mosaic is it's a quick turns, as in your turn is always very quickly, you take one action out of eight. Civilization, building game, focusing on growth on a map around the Mediterranean Sea and not on combat, and set very much in the classical era. So it doesn't expand through lots of eras. You're just focusing on growing your own empire during that particular time. Now, I said there's eight basic actions. I started trying to like put down the mechanisms, but any time you're going to do mechanisms for this sort of a game, it's going to sound generic. At the end of the day, you're managing four resources. You're building cities or towns or military units on the board, although there's very little actually military in there very little war you can sort of knock out military units here or there but it's, it's very here and there and it's not direct war you can build wonders there's nine of them available not seven which can add two that's fine and you can discover technologies in order to power up what you're doing and what your vp engineers because the whole point of mosaic is to build synergies between these symbols you get from getting technologies and wonders and what have you to unlock other cards to make yourself good at something to for example create towns that specialize in certain types of manufacturing and then claim the land that will give you the resources for that to control areas because the board the map is split up into different areas and to try and push for success in one or two areas of development within your civilization look for certain cards to come out that suit the path that you're going down and time when to take them and maximize them and also hope that it all works out because uh, the game can end in various ways but one of the main ways is when there's three particular cards drawn out from particular decks but the good news about that is with the civilization game although it has got apparently a realistic two hour playtime you can manipulate the length of the game by sort of seeding those cards into the decks, which is a nice thing. Now, again, I think I ended up sounding quite generic there because it's difficult in this sort of an explanation to split up these civilization games. You're doing something similar. The focus on this is super quick turns, quick teach, probably a bit longer to set up, actually. You are specializing and there's not a high amount of player interaction. Now, it does seem like you're going to choose something good each turn. Every time I do something, I feel like I'm getting somewhere, I'm developing, I'm going in the right direction. It's more about how quickly I get myself going and how well I'm scoring VP rather than can I score victory points, which has the flip side of saying, when I look at Mosaic, there's a slight lack of obstacles and a slight lack of tension there. And I'm not really seeing what I'm fighting against other than my own stupidity, which I have to face on a daily basis anyway. 
there does appear to be a bit of lack of interaction. There is an area majority issue going on there with the different areas of the maps, but I'm not really interacting with you all that much. Now, that's going to work for some players and not with others. It doesn't particularly work well with two, possibly not even with three from the reports because this game was kickstarted wherever, a while ago. I didn't actually check the Kickstarter. Right? In fact, it was noted to me as kickstarted by Sean because we were talking about this yesterday and he kickstarted it. So he's getting it delivered some point soon. So even if it is going to be a treasure, I'm not sure I really have to buy it because I can just borrow Sean's. What does seem interesting to me and almost sort of a commentary and a sign of the times is that there are ratings for the game available already and some are from plays, but most of them are from plays on Tabletopia or Tabletop Simulator. And it does seem that the game wasn't ported very well across to those platforms. And that has affected the initial ratings. And I think we've talked about this before. In this day and age, those initial few ratings you get is really going to affect the initial hit of sales that a game gets. Now, luckily for Mosaic, it's going to have the Kickstarter bounce because all games from Kickstarter get rated highly. It just happens. People have put money into it. It's self-selecting. Some people want to play that game anyway, so they are predisposed to like it. They all get a ratings bump. Transferring that Kickstarter bump into a wider and more long-term success is what's proven to be very difficult. And it's funny that the Tabletopia and TTS ports could be one of the most important driving factors behind that, which is not something we would have said a few years ago. I'm a bit torn on Mosaic. Lack of obstacles in the game can mean lack of replayability. But on the flip side of that is the very quick turns and the combos and the fact that I can chase different things in different games. Yeah, I'm either it's kind of easy for me to say this. I'm going to give it a treasure. Raccoon Tycoon is the game that it's most often compared to. Tom Vassell kept mentioning that, for example, in his video of it. And I love Raccoon Tycoon, the super games, but there's more interaction in there because when you choose an action, other players can kind of come in and do it for you on one of the particular actions. But that comparison, the quick play, I love a Civ game. I'm going to give it a treasure, but again, it was an easy choice because Sean's going to own it, so I don't need to worry about it too much. So that's a positive start with three treasures in a row. Okay, the next game up is Evergreen. One to four players, 45 minutes from Horrible Guild. King's Dilemma, Railroad Inc., Potion Explosion, Dragon Castle, Horrible Guild. I've got a good stable of games behind them. Xiaomar Hack appears to have recent times been really linked closely to Horrible Guild and a lot of his games have come out with them. He also designed Photosynthesis. And let's start there because if you know the game Photosynthesis, Evergreen has got some similarities to it. And that you're more or less playing photosynthesis on your own board in terms of putting trees in. The sun's going to shine in a certain direction. Big trees will block out smaller trees. That is a skin deep to some degree comparison because there are big differences. In this case, in Evergreen, you're drafting for your actions, although the sun does rotate and vegetation grows and high ones block, as I just said. Okay, there's going to be four rounds. The sun will be in a cardinal direction for each of those four rounds. In each round, you're going to draft cards. It's more in the first round and fewer in the last round. And when you draft cards, you're going to take plants and put them in different terrains on your board, depending upon the card you've taken. Or take a growth action in the terrain. 
And there's also bonus actions will that will let you grow plants that you've already placed or place water to make growing around it easier or put sort of connector bushes in to connect up your groups of trees because having a large group is good. Now, every time that we draft, and there's five in the first round down to two in the last round, there's one more card available than there are players in the game. And when we've all drafted, that last card goes into a scoring pile and they have got good and bad symbols on them. That is going to dictate how many points your trees in each terrain are going to score. So there's an interesting thing, although obviously first player in the round has less control of that than last player in the round, which at least means being the last player has got interest to it. So that's probably quite a positive as well. If I had concerns about lack of interaction back there for Mosaic in the last one, then here my concern is rife. Photosynthesis, you're all playing on a shared board. Evergreen, you're just putting things on your own board and you're doing your own little puzzle. And yes, you're drafting, and drafting suggests interaction. Of course, there must be some interaction. However, what is my interest in the other three boards around the place? And what is my interest in not taking something that you like, which I always talk about in drafting? In Evergreen, I can't see why I would ever not take just the best card for me and make my puzzle most efficient. And if yours happens to win at the end of it, then there's not a lot I could have done about that. Also, on the wrong foot, is that I didn't like photosynthesis, to be honest with you. It's fine. I don't get excited by it. I'm not particularly fast. I've played it a couple of times. I just never grabbed me. In terms of Evergreen itself, I think it might be all right for a play or two. There's nothing here to draw me in. There's no crack around the table. There's no real deep puzzle. There's nothing changing up much from game to game. And it's just not for me. So I'm going to give Evergreen a trap right now next up is a second horrible guild game this one is called the great split two to seven players 45 minutes again <laughs> horrible guild have released all those games the designer here is yama hack same designs as i've with evergreen and lorenzo silver who designs a lot of the same games as yama hack they are a design team together most of the time okay in the great split we are the upper echelons of society during uh, some, let's say, beginning of the uh, 20th century. And we are living a life of luxury. And we have got together at a gala. And somehow we're trying to prove how great we are by collecting things <laughs> like gems and art treasures and books and stuff. I don't, I don't think the theme really works too well. What happens is you get a hand of cards of all these goodies. From that hand of cards, you're going to put them into a wallet with a divider between two halves. And then you're going to pass that wallet to the left. So you're going to receive one. Everyone does this all at the same time. And then you're going to look at the offer that you've been given. And from the two sets of cards, either side of the divider, you're going to take one to retain for this turn and pass back the wallet with half the cards. It doesn't have to be half, but with, you know, the section you did not select back to your right-hand side while you receive back the cards that haven't been selected by the person on your left. Then you're going to, Play all the cards that you now have, those you decide to take and those that were refused. I split, you choose, mechanism going on. And they're going to move you up various tracks. And then you're going to pick up all the cards that you have and you're going to do the same thing again. You're going to put a divider in, hand them aside. So some cards are going to cycle around the table and some cards will stick with you. And your control over that is how nice you want to make the two offers and what you're trying to get your neighbour to take from you and what you wish to take from your other neighbour. This goes on for six rounds. At the end of the six rounds, you're going to score up for the different areas you have for different 
different two different types of gems. They have to be even to score most. There's the value of art goes up according to things that happen in the game, how many books you have as a multiplier, and all this good stuff that you have is going to score you points. So, the great split. Simultaneous turns, fantastic. Everyone's doing something at the same time. I mean, with seven players, I'm not sure I'm interacting very much with those people who are on the other side of the table from me, but that's okay. We're all here having a good time. And the worst part of I split you choose is usually the downtime because someone's splitting while no one's, everyone's doing nothing else. Then someone's making the decision while everyone else is doing nothing else. So they've definitely gone after that issue with this mechanism and improved it. The key to I split you choose is the scoring. And the scoring has to be interesting to put any sort of tension into the why we're choosing things and the way we're choosing things. And that's what was missing here for me. It just looked like moving up tracks and always moving up far seemed like a good idea. I mean, you have to balance the gems a bit. Okay, fair enough. If that's the only thing that's hooking me on the scoring, then that's not enough for me. And I definitely missed what's going to make me care about the great split which is why unfortunately for the second game in a row i'm giving this a trap and the great split won't be coming home with me next up is a small card game called donkey valley it's three to seven players about 45 minutes to play it's from jolly dutch productions who've done chartered and Herloff and stefan Hendricks, who is his first design i do believe now donkey valley I'm thinking maybe Dicky Valley might be a better name for this. It's a hidden card play and bluffing game where you're trying to get your fellow players to make mistakes. It's about donkeys carrying loads out of the Grand Canyon. And on each turn, there's eight turns in the game, a donkey is flipped over. A standard donkey can carry a load of 15. Each player, one at a time, plays face down a load card, which gives a weight that they want to put onto this donkey. Then we go back round the table when everyone's put a face down card and everyone says whether they think this donkey is overloaded or not from the cards that have been played face down. If you guess correctly, you're going to score some points. If you've guessed and it was loaded correctly and you said it would be, you score whatever card you put on there. So the higher load you can get on a donkey that hasn't been overloaded, the more points that you're going to score. If you guessed correctly that it was overloaded, then all the cards get shuffled up and you get a random scoring points card from the ones that are put onto the donkey. Now, donkeys have got various quirks. You're only going to play eight out of the 15 total in each game. And also, each of the players can use two special powers over the course of the game to delay decisions or to look at a play card or to change their load card after everyone has played. And like I say, with the donkeys, they some of them can take more, some of them can take less. There's just different things they can do, which just slightly mix up. It's not just going for a load of 15 every turn. Now, the whole key to Donkey Valley is that's a very simple rule set. It depends how it's played. And there's a note in the rule book, which I think is absolutely uh, vital to it, is that when you play a card, you should really try and say something. You should say, oh, that's very light. No, that's that. there's nothing. Don't worry about this. I've almost no load. I've almost taken a load off it. Or, sorry, everyone, I've had to put a huge load on this donkey this time. I just had to get it up there. It's desperate. The hospital need these supplies that I've had to put on there, wherever it might be. And then you're trying to read. And then, obviously, when people are then making the bet for loaded and not loaded, you know, if I say I've put a tiny little 
weight on there and then I bet it's going to be overloaded people will then react to that and hopefully have a shout at me and then we can have a bit of a chat and a laugh and then suddenly you're in each other's heads and you're pointing at each other and I'm hoping that Donkey Valley has got that sort of magic that allows people to interact around the table like that and do a little bit of bluffing and wind each other up and talk nonsense and then shout at each other and go why would you why would you put one kilo on it and then bet that it's overloaded what is wrong with you because I'm trying to get you to put overloaded so that I'm the one who wins all the points what are you talking about Get the idea? It's only €13. I like the sound of this for a bit of abuse and a bit of crack. So I am in on Donkey Valley. I'm hoping it might be a bit of an under-the-radar hit here. So yeah, treasure for Donkey Valley. Next up is Rankster. Another sort of group lighter game for 3-12 players, taking about 30 minutes to play from Lamaim Games, Coup, Senators, Profiteers, and Ricky Tata, designer of Coup and Comedian and Gooseberry. This is... Very simple. In Rankster, you draw three cards with the names of famous people on, fictional or non-fictional, whoever they might be. Then you draw a situation or a challenge, and each round one player is the judge, and secretly they rank those three cards from first to third, and everyone else discusses how they think the judge has ranked them and tries to get the same ranking. So, an example taken from the actual LOL video, Hi Joel, Good work, thank you. He teaches you how to play the game in three minutes. It's a very good video. Go check it out if you're interested in Rankster. Who could eat the most donuts? Oliver Twist, Chewbacca, or Karl Marx? Now, you might think Oliver Twist because he's a hungry urchin and he wants more food, but he's only got a child's stomach. And then you might think Chewbacca because he's a massive animal. I'm stealing this from John, by the way, an actual lol, so sorry if you copyrighted it. But he's a Wookiee. Do they eat human food? So then you might think Karl Marx, because he's an adult man who we know would eat donuts and have a bigger stomach than Oliver Twist. But would he take them all? Or would he be more, more interested that everyone gets a fair share? You're getting the idea. The more stupid the situation, the more outrageous out there, the more creative that your friends are in coming up with these arguments, the better I think Rankster is going to work. One minute to set up and teach. There's not really any point screwing to it. It's more about creating a discussion and having fun. From what I've told you, you're going to know whether you like this or not. I'm also a bit confused how it's never been done before. It seems like such an obvious idea. And with those games that seem like such an obvious idea, they're the ones that really hit home. So it's gone treasure for me because I think it's going to be great for family gatherings, barbecues, conventions and stuff in the bar area. I can see ranks to being a proper good laugh. So I'm in for that one. Next one up is called All Roads. Two to four players, 30 minutes from lotopellet.fi, the publishers of Eclipse, Nation, Flam Rouge, and designers Marcus Ketunen, who this is his first design. Although I've only got 13 games on here, I've probably looked at 25 or 30 games just to come up with these 13 games. And I know that when you're looking at loads and loads and loads of games for Essen, you do start to get a bit narky here and there. And things that you'd usually let go in normal times start to really wind you up. But so Lord of Pellet have really wound me up. They do sometimes come across to me in, in various interactions. They cannot be bothered with people. They'd rather make games and the games magically sell via robots. And they make really good products. So why bring that up? Well, because during the course of looking at this game, I just kept getting this idea in my head that what... Why you don't like people? Why do you do this? I don't. Okay. They had pre-order up for All Roads and it closed prior to the rulebook being available. Okay. They had the rulebook, they just didn't make it available. 
when you go to the board game geek page they're posting on there saying pre-order buy our game but the page is completely bare there's no photos they haven't even uploaded the rule book which they have on their own website to bgg but they're asking you for your money we'll put some effort in but put, put, put the rule book put some photos up don't make me go searching to find out about your game there's allegedly 1,100 games coming out. You know, there's not really. There's different language editions and reprints and demos and all the rest of it. There are a few hundred games coming out at Essen. Why are you making it hard work for me to find out about your game? You're on BGG. I can see you're on there. Put the information out. The pre-order sale system charged people extra. They knew that this was in the system. It was going to charge people extra money. And they just let it go live anyway. Well, if you wanted to pre-order the game... You had to read down through their page to find a campaign code to put into a tab at the top before you could start pre-ordering the games. You're like, why are you making me do this? I don't understand. And people are posting going, I've got this problem, I've got this problem. And they're just going, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, cool. Ah, anyway. Okay. The second, I mean, that's all, that was all my first point. I know this is very cathartic for me. You imagine how this review is going, or not even review, I'm sorry. Preview, never played it. Was the rule book written in a hurry? Did you have something better to do that day? It's completely out of order. You're just looking at it going, I don't, what? Oh, eventually down the line, now you're telling me. It's a real simple tartline game. I haven't spoken about this game all roads. It's a real simple tartline game. The rule book makes it seem so complicated and they keep using confusing terms that they haven't explained and are actually incorrectly defined in their own rule book in that thing of slightly awkward English again, where when you're talking about technical definitions, when the use of words is not correct, it makes it all more complicated. Do, you, do they hate this game? Do they not want us to buy it? Okay, what it is is a tile layer. Put out hexagon tiles. It starts with two hexagons at the start of Rome. The tiles have patterns of roads on them. And when you put out a tile, you're looking to create a certain pattern of roads. Now, there are dead ends on them, or when you can create a dead end, when a road just goes into a field, that's good. And you must make sure that a road always goes back to Rome at all times, so you can't kill all the roads. But when a, you create a certain road goes into a field, you can build a structure there. Even better, if you can build a loop so that the road goes out from Rome and back into it somewhere else, everything that's within that loop, or any loop, to be honest with you, can get upgraded. And you can turn these little houses into villas that score more points. Or if they're near hot springs, you can turn them into spas which score more points. And then you, if you create a special loop, you put a monument down that's worth even more points. And the whole point in this quick tile layer is to get as many of your pieces on the board as possible and to score at the end for having your monuments, your spas, your villas, and your houses out. That seems okay. Here's the last bit that was my major concern. It says in the rule book. You should plan other people's goes for them and then point out their best moves to them to help you and them. So if you see something they can do and go, oh, that'll get you that and that'll get you that, but it'll get me stuff as well. In a four-player game, the other three players are going to plan out your move for you and try and tell you what's your best move. In a co-op, that's annoying. In a competitive game where I'm sitting there, well, if I choose then to do the move Sean's asked me to do, not the one that Rachel and Natalie have asked me to do, they're going to have a go at me. <laughs> why, why, why do you keep doing what he wants? Oh, because it scores me more points. But you're just handing the game to him. How often is that going to happen? Why would you put that in a rule book? Why do you hate happiness? Why do you not want people to be friends at the end of the day? 
You're telling people to quarterback in your game when people hate being quarterbacked. So much about this game irritated me. I just couldn't even begin. As trappy as a trap can be, all roads trap. Please don't anyone ever put that suggestion in a rulebook again. Just why do you hate freedom? What's wrong with you? We're going to move on and I'm going to calm down maybe a little bit to Atiwa. One to four players, 90 minutes from Lookout Games, publishers of Caverna, Agricola, Leave, Patchwork, all games by Uwe Rosenberg, who's also designed A Feast of Odin, Hallertau, Glass Road, Bonanza, and plenty of other hit games. A rock star of a designer who continues to make hits. Atiwa is a range of mountains in southeast Ghana, and the whole theme of the game is that where there is gold and bauxite within those hills and there's mining going on, there is also a a local push and also a a more global conservation push to try and get more farming and working in harmony with wildlife. And there's a local leader around the town of Kibi promoting conservation of fruit bats because they're very important to the ecology of Ghana and some colonies have been registered to be only 2% of their population remaining. Also, an interesting thing about Kibi that I found out, if you're a Premier League football fan, I'm sorry, turn off for 60 seconds if you're not, Kibi's the home of the Ayu brothers. Not only is it the home of the Ayu brothers, but something I didn't know was Abidi Pele, that wicked player, played for Marseille in the early 90s and lots of other European teams, one of the best African players ever, is their dad. His name is Abidi Ayu. I never knew that. Okay, I learned that looking into this game. I'm going to keep going. Move on. Back to gaming. You build a settlement... When you bring people in, initially they will want to mine in order to get the money that they need to live. You're going to be attempting to create a situation which they can turn the economy over and go to sustainable growing of fruit. But that's going to be a push on because as more people move into the segment you're growing, you're going to be looking to cut things down to make more space, which will affect the animals. And you're trying to find a balance between those things in order to score most points. It's seven rounds. On each round, you're going to be choosing actions from a row of grid spaces and something that's come a lot in this spiel is that the actions slightly change each round because there's sort of a secondary action that moves along so that the actions are, are slightly different every single round. Okay, what you're trying to do with these actions is your own personal grid of spaces. You take cards, act as tiles. They've got squares on them with different features within them, which allows them to take on different resources uh, or buildings or whatever it might be. And with these grid of spaces that you're building up, you're looking to populate with people, put trees into play, which will allow you to have fruit. You're going to want to keep goats, which will help you feed people either sustainably or you can kill goats to feed people quickly, which is partly how it's fine. And also, of course, you're looking to get bats in. And having loads of bats will give you bonuses each night because it will keep your your ecology going and you, you'll keep growing more things. And also at the end of the game, if you've got lots of bats, then they're each going to score you points. So that's kind of the, the end game you're going to is to make a, a system where bats want to live where you're building your settlement. You're also going to get points because you have your own stock of trees and fruit and goats and wildlife. And the more of them you've got in play, the more points you're going to play, you're going to get at the end of the game. Although they will be going in and out of your stock during the course of the game as various things happen. So you want to get out wildlife and trees because that will be the starting. Once you get out trees and look after them, that will bring out fruit. When you get fruit, that will bring out bats and the bats will come back in and give you more trees again. So you're trying to keep this cyclical system going on however the end of each of seven turns you need to feed your population and more population will keep coming in in order to feed your population 
you, you've got loads of goats, they'll give you milk, but it doesn't probably won't feed everyone. You're going to be having to look to either kill wildlife or kill those goats or even kill bats to feed them, which is going to be a difficult choice. If you're not happy with the idea that you can be killing the wildlife in the game, then probably don't want to play it too well because that is very much part of it. Also, as people come in, you're going to be chopping down trees, which will push them back into your stock onto your little stock board you've got, which means you'll be getting less fruit and less bats will be coming out. And the new families which move in always start out as attempting to mine before you can, it's a very awkward use of words now, train them to turn them over so they stop mining and don't pollute so much. I think that could be handled better. But as they do mine, it pollutes your your spaces and pollution will come down and, and kill everything that it's near. So obviously you want to keep that in check, although you do need to keep people coming in in order to be successful. I think it's an interesting premise. I love the fact that we're not back to doing some sort of medieval or 18th century farming in Germany. I'm all about that. I like the whole cyclical system where I'm having to make difficult choices and it will actually feel tough. I don't want to have to kill these goats, but I have to feed people. If I don't, I end up killing wildlife or bats. I don't want to do that either. So you are forced into difficult choices and it probably puts things into a bit of stark reality. Judging it just as a game though, it's a puzzle, but it's a very solitaire puzzle. And it's a very solitaire puzzle that doesn't change from game to game. I can't see anything that mixes it up. There's, there's no sort of cards mixing it up. So, so internally, the puzzle doesn't change from game to game much. You can get different um, layouts and put different landscapes down and stuff. Yes, that's a variation, but not much. And there's very little interaction. So then you don't have the player interaction, which also is the thing that causes variety within games. So that is the main thing I'm struggling with. Do I think it'll be good play? Yes, I do. I think it'll be very enjoyable first game. I think it'll be enjoyable second game, maybe even third game. But for me, Egypt boy, who needs something new all the time, I cannot see that lasting through into several plays, which is why I have to give a Tiwa a trap, even though I think it'll be really good first play. There you go. Lack of replayability biting me again. Maybe. Next game up is Deities, two to four players, 60 minutes game from Mandu Games. Now, Mandu Games, this is about to kick up a few times in the next few games. That while I know I have got and have played Mandu Games, when I go into the BG page, they localize a lot of games. So it's very hard to tell which ones are actually theirs that they've published. I'm sorry, I don't know. Gary Kim is a designer. He has got a load of games to his credit, including Hare and Tortoise, Corio, Rising 5, and just loads more. Deities is played on a shared board, which is a grid of squares. It starts with four tiles in play in the central four squares of this board. And each tile is two-sided with a different one of three resources in the game on each side. So one side might be rice, one might be stone, one might be stone, one might be wood. On your turn, you're going to play a tile down. Now, adjacency works eight ways in this. It can be diagonally adjacent to another tile or orthogonally. And the thing you do when you play a tile is that you have to make a line of at least three that starts and ends with the resource you're going to play. The tile you have in your hand will be two-sided, obviously. So if I choose to play stone down, it has to go stone, at least one something else, and then finish in stone. And then that is the divine line that I have created for my turn. There's between seven and nine turns in the game, depending upon how many players you're playing with. What happens then is I get the start resource I've played down, I get the end resource that matches it, and every tile in between, and obviously as there's more and more tiles on the board, these lines will get longer and longer, 
they flip over and they get the new one that's on them. Now, you can see what's going to flip. It is indicated on the side, so you will know what you're going to get. It's not like, oh, I wonder what I get this time. Once I've collected all those resources, I can then spend them. The thing I most like to spend resources on is one of three different types of buildings. And you get your own set of buildings and they have costs of them and the costs become more and more. I can build a wall around a tile that's on the board and that's going to let me draft a disciple from a market that's always on offer and they will give me special powers I can use throughout the game. I can make a temple. Now a temple can go onto a tile or can go on top of a wall and it doesn't even have to be my wall. I can take over someone else's space. And when I build a temple, that's going to give me a development tile, which will give me my own end game scoring. Or the last one is the tower, the most expensive, and can go on top of a wall and a temple. You can make a three-tier thing. And that's mostly for area control and for scoring, because each time a line is activated that has your building in, you're going to get something. And if it's a wall or a temple, you'll get a resource, or if it's a tower, you're going to get a coin. I think it's that way around. Anyway, and coins are good because they're wild. Also, at the end of the game, or before that, if a tile is placed right in the corner, each quadrant of the board is going to score for area majority and your buildings being on top of, so, you know, if, if I've got a temple on top of your wall, it's my temple that counts, is going to score for being a majority in there in presence. Now, the key to this is, I said there's only seven, eight or nine turns you're going to take in the whole game. You've got 12 buildings to try and build. And also, I said that those lines will get really long. You collect loads of resources. At the end of your turn, you must discard down to six resources. So as well as this idea that we're doing all this building up and doing majority scoring and putting things in the right place, the game ticks along and is done very quickly. Not only that, but you've been given a Providence card at the beginning of the game, which means that you're going to score for control of a particular type of terrain on the board. Now, that's not linked to those quadrants. They're spread across the place. So you're going to have an incentive to put your buildings in one of the four terrains on there. Not only that, but also those developments that give you endgame VP will also quite often incentivize you for being in particular places on the board, in squares of a certain size or in particular lines, whatever it might be. So you're getting pushed to put your buildings in certain places by various methods. And also you're pushing to, should I get the cheaper walls out and get these in-game powers to make more powerful? Or should I chase in-game? Or if someone put a temple that's really annoying because it suits my two scoring cards, so I have to put my tower on top of that in order to ultimately claim it and no one can take it once it is a tower. You're getting pulled in different directions. It is very quick to set up and very quick to teach. I've just told you how to play the game. You pretty much know how to play the buildings are attractive plastic pieces. They're quite standout. The artwork is nice. The actual board itself isn't all that, but the artwork for like the cards and for your own player boards are cool. Seems like the last rounds are going to be probably way more important than the first ones, although the first ones obviously will be setting up what you're attempting to do. But you're just going to be getting so many resources at the end, the more stuff you can do. Will certain lines get completely rinsed? So once you start building up a line, it goes to five, then six, then seven, then eight long. And the other columns are like all too long. And you're just going to be hitting that one line. But obviously the board is only so, so big. Who knows what it's going to be after. There's obviously questions having not played it. And also is keeping track of others' priorities. Plus the change in resource tiles. Are you really going to feel like you've got a handle on what's going on all the time on the board? I don't know. But I want to find out. And deities is interesting me so i have gone for a tentative treasure for that one so that's deities 
Next game up is Evora. Evora is two to four players, 45 minutes long, from a Porta Games, another one This lo- they localise games in the Portuguese market. Designer is Jao Quintela Martens. Designer Lusitania, Vidrado, Gelato, Mio, quite a few games. It's really an abstract game. But the theme that is is 14 remaining columns of a, of a Roman temple that are still standing in the centre of the modern-day town of Evora in Portugal. You're looking in Roman times to build just those 14 columns. I would think there's probably more of the temple at the time when the Romans built it, but we're just going to do the 14 columns that, that stuck it out till 2022 at least. The mechanism of the game is there is a rondel with 20 spaces, and each turn you're going to move your worker clockwise to the next clear, empty run of three spaces and choose one of them. So obviously if two things down, there's someone else's worker. You don't go to those two spaces. You're looking for a clear run of three consecutive spaces, and that's where you go. Once you've moved your worker, you then have a choice of drawing a card, and you can always play cards, or activating your worker where they are. And like I said, you can always play cards from your hand. What are you going to be doing? Well, a lot of the time you're going to be placing your own blocks of your colour in one of those 14 column spaces on the board. Or if a column has got four spaces in, you've got capitals you can play, which will be the fifth block high. And that will say that column is done now and that's it set for scoring. There are also neutral colour blocks which you can put in play by various actions. Or there are cards you can use to score a column for having majorities and many of your cards are in there, or a certain level, because the levels of one, two, three, four, and five, and how many of your blocks are in each level also become important. The other thing is that as well as being your own workers on the board, there's also the centurion, and you can actually play cards if you don't like your choice of actions to move the centurion to their next three spaces and use one of those actions, which is an interesting way of getting out of that rondel thing of I'm not where I want to be but it doesn't give you complete freedom. You can always hand in three cards without using their powers for one of big benefit. There are four of those within the game and like they're used and they're gone. So I'm guessing there'll be a race to those. There's also ways of getting the emperor bonuses in play and you attach those to a particular column space and that's going to give you bonuses for each of your blocks that's in that particular column up to the maximum five and five VP. So it could be 25 VP. It could be huge. The game... Evora all seems perfectly fine. Decent rule book makes it all very clear. One of my holdbacks is that I can't see an incentive to interact within the columns. Now, yes, there's scoring for individual columns and then there's scoring for levels. But when I compare the scoring for levels to the ensuring I get my emperor bonus and my 5 VP per block going, that looks like a lot more valuable to me. So I feel like I'm going to be securing a few columns with the vast majority of my blocks in before I start worrying about where I'm jumping in to start affecting you. Maybe. It's a concern I have. The other concern is Evora's got a really dated look to it all. The box isn't so bad. I don't know why the the, the Roman centurion with his feathers on look quite so odd, but there you go, they have. But in terms of the look of it on the table, there is no chance of this being noticed. It looks like a game from the 90s. And no matter how good the gameplay is, I think we're a smaller publisher with a game like this. I don't know that anyone's going to notice it. And I know that as a small publisher, they haven't got loads of money to spend to get massive, lavish production. But when you look at the same size companies and what they are able to create now, 
I don't think the look of this is going to get anyone interested. Now, I think it could be a decent game. I wish the construction sites were limited. Again, not having played it, but to me, force some interaction. Force us to vibe with each other a little bit. Maybe it costs more to open up a space that I can then go in, and then we've got choices to make. In the end, I just don't think many people are going to buy Evora. I think it's probably a decent game. I think it's probably better than most that are going to be released. I doubtful even I will buy it because there's just not in, there's nothing there to say this game above all the others. So I'm not even going to give it a trap. I just think Evora is going to get overlooked. So if you do happen to be walking past Mebo Games on their stall, I think I said a portal before. It's Mebo, Mebo Games. If you do happen to walk past the Mebo Games stall, you see Evora, maybe stop and give it five minutes of your attention. I think it might be all right. Okay. Next up is Kingdom Defenders. It's actually a 2018 game that was very small and niche released just in the Spanish market. And they are looking to re-release it with improved rulebook and try and get it. So I'm treating it as a new release because really I don't think many people heard about it back in 2018. It's two to four players, 90 minutes long. Primogenio, again, one of those localization publishers for Spain. And the designer, and this is the key to why I think they're re-releasing this, is German Milan, who's the designer of Bitoku, the big hit for Devere in the last year. So here's his first design, and they think there's something here for you to have a look at. That's why I had a look at it. It's a fantasy thing, and we are coming together as nobles to the capital city who is under threat from an advancing horde, and we have to gather the resources to repel the horde in a worker placement euro with heavy theming, but it is fully competitive. Although the game is attempting to attack the city, there is no semi-co-op here, really. It's just how you want to score points. You can choose to join in the point scoring or you can choose not to. We'll get to how that works, but semi-co-op makes me run away from a game. It's on here. We'll get to how it works. It didn't make me run away. Okay. There's six rounds in which you're playing worker discs out into the city, but then those worker discs don't resolve when you place them. They resolve in board order and a dominant species and many other games. What you do once the discs revolve is you activate characters for the different powers. There's only three characters in play in any one game, but there are lots available. And one of the things about this is that it gives you a basic set of things and says, draw from these this limited set and put them in play. They have star values on them. And the number of stars that you put in play indicates how difficult they are, how hard the game will keep punching you and how easy and less complicated it is to play. I moan about this a lot, where games just give you the, all these options and say, just play whatever you like. You work out what's best. No, no, no. At least here they've said... Here's some beginner ones, here's some moderate ones, here's some more advanced ones, and you only use three per game from this little deck. Okay, variety with structure. I'm on board on that. You can tell I'm on board on that already. There are deeds you can go out and claim. You just have to show resources and say, look, I've got these, and then you can claim rewards. You have to show you've got weapons. You have to show you've got loot from going out on adventures. You might show that you've made enough coins. You're just saying, look how cool I am. Look at all the things I've done. And you get those sort of things from completing adventures and visiting buildings. Visiting buildings, you say, yes, there are buildings you can go to. Similar to characters, they vary from game to game. In each game, they unlock one round at a time, so you get more and more spaces, and they are basically resource spaces. What resources do we get from them? We mostly get weapons and spells, which we'll take to adventures, which is another part of the board. You go to an adventure with a disc. Some discs, some places require two discs. There's different things. You might have to take a wound to go. There's different, there's different things of going out. They're all just put down one of your six discs each turn. 
On an adventure, this time you will spend your weapons and spells to say, I've done this adventure. You might take wounds. Now, wounds is interesting. You can have a maximum of four wounds. You'll never die. Once you're on four, you can no longer choose to take wounds to pay for anything, to go to a space or do an adventure, what have you. But also, to have any wounds at all, costs one of your six action discs. So you're down a worker. I thought that was quite interesting. Anyway, when you do adventures, you're going to score points. You can get relics for endgame scoring. And you can start leveling up in one of two areas. Uh, it's all managed quite simply. It's just a track, more or less, that you go along. Which, as you get better at being either a fighter or a mage, it can cover the requirements for weapons or spells for going on adventures. Or it can boost your VPs. Or generally, it's just good. And while we call it leveling up, and like everything we're putting this fancy theme on it, this is a Euro. You're spending resources for a menu to get good stuff. You're moving up a track to get boosts for scoring. It's just got that coating across it. There's an interesting thing where you place where some of the actual spaces are inside the city and some are outside the city walls. Although they resolve in a different order, you, once you've gone outside the walls, you cannot return to place back into the city. There's another area in which there's sort of a camp outside the city wall that's going to be fighting the Horde. And when you go there, you can add spells and weapons to the camps. There are limits to how many you add, and there's also a total limit, which is on the current horde that's coming towards the city. And between us, we can't go above there. But if we get to there, then during this round, that horde will be defeated, and points can be handed out for contributing to that, because you keep them in your own area and say, I gave those, you gave those, you gave those. It's just a way of scoring points. If it gets to a point where the horde attacks and we haven't hit those limits, then they break the city wall, which doesn't do anything initially, but also, you're going to get a few points for contributing and penalties, obviously, for not contributing. So it's your choice how much you want to put in or not. If the Horde ever was to break the wall a second time, it ends the game prematurely. And we'd still add up points and there is an alleged winner, but they said you can't become king because the Horde took over your kingdom because you all did a bad job. Which, okay, fair enough. But the game, it's not a complete loss. This is why I think the semi-carp is mitigated to some point. And I think it's done correctly. And you're going to get rewards of contributing no matter what happens in the end. So I don't think it's going to feel like, well, if, if I don't join in, you're not getting any points, so why would I join in? Which is what happens in a lot of them. The theme through the whole thing, while it may be fancy and generic, also helps the whole thing make sense. The rule book is very interesting. From what I can gather, there were issues with the rule book previously, and I can understand why, because everything sort of interacts with each other. The second edition rulebook now, it's like being taught by a nice friend who you like, I like this person, they're chatting to you, but they want to be a bit chatty while they're trying to teach you the rules, so it's not very concise. But every effort is made to be comprehensive. So it definitely covers everything. I know how to play the game, but it took me a while to get through it. For me, Kingdom Defenders is an absolute treasure all the way, and it's what these episodes and this research is all about is that it's this game that I would have overlooked had I not said, right, I'm going to go through a bunch of games and try and find some interesting ones with some sort of an angle to talk about. There's limited availability. So please do not rush there on Thursday morning and pick them all up because I want one. Or if you do go there early because I gave you this and all one and a half of you do it, say to them, keep one for Ronan from the game pit because he really wants a copy and he's not going to get it till this afternoon. So there you go. Kingdom Defenders, an unexpected treasure. If you've been keeping track, you know that I've got one game left and it is a quickie. But I don't know how to say it. One Iron Noughts or Nyronauts? 
It's O-N-E-I-R-O-N-A-U-T-S or Nironauts. Okay, cool. Two to six players, 30 minutes from iGames, another company that does localization. But I know that they are closely linked to designer Oleg Nevsky, who designed Mysterium and Detective Club. What's on Ironauts? It is kind of like reverse co-op Dixit. You draw a word card. Everyone puts in a card from their hand with lovely artwork on, think Dixit Stoley, that matches that word, plus a random picture gets drawn from the deck. Then you shuffle those, those cards up, you reveal all the cards, and everyone simultaneously votes on which of those cards is the random one without talking to each other. As a team, you get one point for each correct guess on which the random card is. And you get six rounds in order to score however many points is the target for the number of players that you're playing with. On Iron, That's it. That's the whole game. It looks lovely. It's got this whole sort of sleeping sheep theme to it to draw people in. Oleg Nevsky is great at putting a twist on these sort of visual games. And this is a treasure because it's going to be a lovely group sharing time for family probably more than with just adults. But I just think it's a very charming product. So keep an eye out for one Ironauts for either your family or friends or whatever it might be. And that's us for this time. Are you going to get any more treasure hunts? Who knows? We'll see how the next few days goes. But I hope you've enjoyed this one. Please don't take it too seriously. Check out DiceTower.com for loads of Essen coverage. And uh, hopefully some of you will see you there. Thanks a lot for listening. Music by E. Harris.